we're really not in New Zealand soft on crime, but it's a very easy soapbox to stand on and say, look, we need to be tougher on crime and it's a great way to win votes. But the reality is that... Um, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. and It makes things more unsafe. Yeah, it really does because by putting people in prison, putting traumatised people in the company of other traumatised people without giving them actual help, it's a recipe for disaster. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. On this episode of Revolving Door Syndrome, we've got Luke Albera, who is a local lawyer in the Auckland area who works in legal aid. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nina. Good to be here. Yeah, very good to have you. So what kind of law do you do? So I mainly do criminal defence law in particular. Most of the work I do is, like you say, legal aid. Okay, cool. So what is legal aid? Legal aid's where the Ministry of Justice, so the taxpayer essentially, funds people's legal fees when they're charged with a crime. Can anyone access legal aid? That depends on mainly your income and your assets. A lot of people are eligible for legal aid, but a lot of people won't be, just based on on that calculation. So how poor do you have to to be allowed to have legal aid? Oh, I can't remember the exact threshold in terms of yearly income off the top of my head but let's just say that most people wouldn't be eligible for legal aid is probably the the fair way to put it probably the vast majority of new zealanders if charged with a crime wouldn't be eligible for legal aid okay and so if you didn't have legal aid then what would you have to do you have to fund your own defence. Oh, that sounds very expensive. It tends to be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you're somebody who, let's say the average earner in New Zealand probably earns, I don't know, somewhere between 50 and 70K as an annual salary and they don't have a lot of assets and they come into trouble because they've accidentally hit someone with like with their car, very much an accident, but need to go to court. Is that like a sort of scenario that you might find? Yeah, that happens quite regularly. The big assumption, I think, in most people's minds is that it'll never happen to me. Exactly. Uh, That's how I live my life. And that's probably through several things in my demographic of being a relatively middle class Asian female that working as a doctor, I probably won't have to go to court to defend myself. And so I feel like, like you say, it's one of those things where you don't know anything about it until you have to know something about it. And at that point, is it a bit late? I think so. I mean, <laughs> the one thing that I would say is that we should really try and overcome that assumption that it won't happen to me. Yeah. Because while the majority of people go through their lives without ever being charged with an offence, when bad luck comes knocking at the door, it's too late to start learning a lot of the time because a brush with the law means generally first an encounter with the police and then with the court system. And if you don't know what you don't know, then you're at a real, you're in a really vulnerable position. Yeah. So if you are that average New Zealand earner, 
earning 50 to 70k and you've accidentally hit someone with your car and you need to find legal representation like would legal aid be able to help would you be able to access legal aid if you're the average New Zealander probably not I'd say most average New Zealanders wouldn't be eligible for legal aid which is I guess quite an interesting social and political issue in the sense that the state fully funds prosecuting crime but uh, individuals are supposed to mount their own defence. Right, so that's crazy. So if you're the average New Zealander earning an average amount of money and you have no assets, which is probably a lot of people our age right now, right? How many people own a home and they're in their mid to late 20s? Very few probably, right? And you've actually hit someone with your car, which like you say, probably happens all the time, is that suddenly you're going to have to fund it yourself. And you said that some people who access legal aid, who, you know, have less, even less money than that, who access legal aid, will then have to pay that back as well later on. Earning 50 to 70k is not even poor enough to get legal aid, but also not poor enough to get the legal aid, the type that you have to pay back as well. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So every circumstance is different. So it's really hard to set down a general rule. But I think what's important to remember as well is there's so many situations that we don't really think of. There's hitting hitting someone with your car or maybe someone hits you with their car, but you're the one that ends up being charged. Maybe you're at a bar one night and someone that's really intoxicated comes at you and starts attacking you and you try and defend yourself and you hit them and the police say you hit them back too hard and that was excessive force. And you say, look, I was just defending myself. When you're thrust into this completely foreign space, the court system, you are at a real disadvantage if you just don't know the basics. And we talk about this example of somebody who's like your average Joe average earner for them to afford a lawyer and a quote unquote good lawyer that'll be difficult you got to wonder why doesn't everyone get the ability to access a lawyer of their choice at the same kind of level particularly with regards to legal aid because what do you get if you spend more money on a more expensive lawyer like what do you get out of that great question great question <laughs> i'm still figuring that out how much money do i need to spend on to get you <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps to explain some of the background there for legal aid except for the most serious crimes you actually don't get to choose your own legal aid lawyer whereas paying a lawyer privately you get to choose someone maybe you feel like you trust them that lawyer in particular maybe for whatever reason you just click and it's a relationship of trust and confidence so in that sense you need a buyer's choice in that way with legal aid the idea is that it should just be a level playing field interesting i don't know if it's similar or different to like in medicine within public hospitals and all that you know all the different specialists this is within new zealand i don't know if it applies to other developed countries as well. You know, in New Zealand, we have a two-tier health system, right? You've got the public system right. and you've got the private system. And one isn't better than the other. They're both good for like different things. As a consumer, private health system means that you get to access investigations and specialists, I would say faster than if you access through the public system for non-urgent, non-complicated things, right? If you need chemotherapy for a cancer of some sort, you'll get a fancier looking hospital, a fancier looking reception and probably a fancy coffee machine or something in the waiting area, that kind of thing. That's what you get with private healthcare. In in Aotearoa, New Zealand, I guess the rule is more that probably some of the best private clinicians are people who also work in public. The ones who are like into teaching and research and all that, they'll work in both. That's very similar then to criminal defence law as well. It's a very similar model. Some of the best lawyers will do a bit of legal aid as well as private work. 
to be honest, they'll probably do majority legal aid right. in the criminal law sphere. Interesting. And so if you are one of those people and you work a lot in legal aid, what is the pay difference then if you're a lawyer who does legal aid versus private? I guess the number one difference is to look at is in terms of criminal law versus other types of law. People doing criminal law generally aren't doing it to make lots of money. That's the first big pay disparity. Right. So it's a little bit different. I'm not sure if it's the same if you've got different er- areas of medicine where some pay vastly more. Oh, definitely. No, yeah. There's de- <laughs> definitely so. different careers where people earn different amounts of money. If only I was in one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's much the same in that sense as well. And that's mainly because in criminal law, your clients tend to be people, individuals, humans, not corporations or other entities, except in some limited cases where they get charged because of just the inequities that perpetuate our system mean that generally the people coming before our courts are those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds who can't afford their own lawyers and they're people who have been severely disadvantaged in their upbringing in life, be through learning difficulties or disabilities or systemic deprivation. If I accidentally hit someone with my car and it's definitely not my fault, but I needed to represent myself, how much would that cost? That's... A very difficult question to answer because it depends on how long it takes for your case to go through the well, courts. Well, how much should, on average, what's the minimum? Oh, gosh. that, that That's real. We're talking tens of thousands of oh dollars. Oh, my God. We're talking tens that's of thousands lot, of dollars. Okay, that's a lot yeah. of money. That's like a knee joint replacement. Okay, maybe a knee joint replacement is more. But that's some surgery right there. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, in many ways, like I say, it depends on the complexity of the case, just like it would depend on the complexity of the case on the surgery. If we're talking a, a full-blown trial where you say... God forbid someone's accusing you of a sexual allegation, for instance, that can often be quite a few days in a jury trial. Yeah, then the numbers start to rack up for a private lawyer. And there's a really good book actually called The Secret Barrister. It's a British book. And the author there, who's anonymous, that's the, <laughs> I guess the whole point of it. He calls it the innocence tax, which is where Joe Bloggs, the average citizen, despite proving their innocence in a way, getting that not guilty, many people would consider them vindicated in a court of law, they're then left with this legal bill. And it's, yeah, it's a... So even if you win, you still have to pay? Yeah, and in almost every single case, you won't be able to recover your costs. Hmm. Wow, so all that stuff that you see on like the TV and, and, you know, whatever about if you win the case, then the person who lost like pays for your legal fees. That's not a thing? It is more in the civil space, but for some reason, and again, it goes back to this dynamic where we seem to place a really high emphasis on prosecuting crime, right? If you're not guilty, sorry, you have to just, it just bear seems the like a very lose-lose situation, doesn't it? So you you lose if you win, you lose if you lose, and the other person also loses. So we all just lose. <laughs> <laughs> We're all losers, yeah. <laughs> much of your work is working with people who need legal aid? Yeah, so I work mainly the Auckland and the Monaco district courts. And what kind of things are you helping these people with? What kind of things have they've been charged with? Anything from a first drink drive to there's obviously there's quite a lot of family violence in New Zealand and things like dishonesty offending, so stealing, um, theft. How is that dishonesty 
different from theft? It's just this, it's just <laughs> different types of dishonesties and people might obtain some kind of advantage by falsely declaring something, writing documents, right, okay. forgery, those kind of things. And then there's just plain old fashioned theft, shoplifting, lots okay. of things like that. And you mentioned something about working in family violence and stuff. Are you often representing both the alleged victim and the alleged perpetrator or is it more one or the other that you normally have to work with? So the majority of my work is criminal defense work uh-huh. and that means we're normally dealing with the alleged offender and in Auckland in particular there's some really good what we call therapeutic courts where a lot of people take responsibility early and put their hand up and they go through various programs that basically stop a repetition of that because it's recognizing that a lot of the people that come before the courts really what they've done is more of a social failing of the the kind of material conditions that they have grown up with and have to live in a lot of people that do come before the court plead guilty to what they're charged with and so it's really important that we have the wraparound support systems in court so we have things like drug and alcohol courts uh, and we have things like a family violence court uh, but these initiatives first of all they're quite new and they often don't receive much funding and second of all these things should be available before people have to come to court right yeah because once you're at court, you know, you've said that you're guilty and now it's on your record. It stays with you for life, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And also, you know, we should be trying to have early intervention rather than We should often, try and prevent the family violence yeah, before it even happens. Being an ambulance what do you, what do you notice? The you talked about like the social things that, the social failings that result in family violence. What do you notice from the people that, you know, the stories of the people you've had to help? It's that that social and economic and cultural deprivation for quite a few years has been under investment in those basic building blocks of society, health, education, Mm. justice. Because most of the way that I see it is it's not to excuse that kind of behaviour, right? Family violence, intimidation, intimate partner violence, all that kind of stuff. None of it is ever excusable. Absolutely. But I think if we don't take a step to try and understand why it happened, where it came from, then are we ever going to do anything to try and help move on? There's evidence about if a, a pregnant mother is under extreme stress, be it through intimate partner violence, financial, whatever, there are hormones that are happening in that mother that are going to affect the baby. And then um, that's not even to do with the relationship later on with mother and baby. It's like all that kind of hormonal changes that are happening in that baby are then probably going to affect that baby's children. If that's, that baby is a mother as well, then one day that baby when they grow up to be a mum <laughs> and they get pregnant mm. there will actually still be that sort of epigenetic effect on what the conditions that their child is born on so that's yeah. like a whole like three generation effect on just one person yeah absolutely that's the perfect summary in a way we've recently had this royal commission into abuse and state care right yes. so i think that what that's really shown is kind of taken the cover off and shown there's a lot of issues that we have unaddressed as a country for many years. And a lot of people that are either in prison or coming before the courts, they're either the victims of violence themselves or they are the victims of sexual abuse themselves. And like you say, hurt people hurt people. And I think the big thing as well is not othering people. It's about humanizing, first of all, 
the justice system and the people that are in it, both offenders and victims, and realising that they're not different from you or I. They're only a couple of degrees of separation away. Oh, 100%. You know, like people talk about gang violence this, gang violence that, or whatever. Mm. And then people not only see what they have seen in the last five, ten years, but they don't look past that to see like you talk about the Royal Commission and mm. like state care and all that mm. and a lot of abuse that happened sort of in the 60s and 70s wasn't yeah. it yeah and so those kids are probably the ones that grew up to be adults who then abuse their kids who are now probably repeat offenders in the system right you hit the nail on the head with the phrase intergenerational trauma because that's really a lot of what we see and I think it's really important that we don't take a punitive approach to this kind of thing, but more of a transformative justice, which means you're seeing this as an opportunity to kind of heal that rather than punishment for the sake of punishment. One of my friends is a police officer and she tells me about some of the crazy things that she sees. And I say crazy when I'm like, some of the stuff happens so often in Aotearoa that I'm like, it's not even that crazy anymore. Like young mums who've got multiple children and the police have been called because of family violence. Um, the common story is that the man is the earner or the father of the children and she doesn't want to press charges because he's the dad, doesn't want him to be put away. And in those sort of situations, is there anything that we can be doing to protect like the women and the children in these situations? Yeah, it's about empowering people to be able to stand on their own two feet, isn't it? And that, I think, starts with making sure people have the opportunities. If they need to be on the benefit, it's enough to cover them and their children rather than being something where you're vulnerable to other people on whether you have access to upskilling and training child care being able to take your children to a safe place so many people rely on family and friends and that's a really privileged thing to be able to do and we talk about i talked about how this family violence is not an acceptable behavior but i feel like in a lot of cases people are stressed through financial reasons right people are not in their right minds there's some study done somewhere in I think Indian farmers or something like that the sugarcane farmers they only receive their pay like twice a year and their IQ wow. is like higher after they've been given their wage and then it like drops when they run out of money people who don't have a lot of money aren't in the right place they're chronically stressed they are not like going to make good decisions and stuff like that so do you think that if people had better financial support we wouldn't see as much family violence yeah absolutely i think it is a combination of those factors but financial stresses is a huge one of it and so is education you know how to sensibly use money all that kind of stuff that starts early an investment in education and all that's really critical but also making sure that people have the ability to be financially secure and whether that's through increased job opportunities or increased support for those that either can't work because of their circumstances or are in between jobs or things like that. Yeah, absolutely critical. So in those family violence courts, after somebody who's the alleged offender then says, I'm guilty and all that, what happens after we've got the conclusion to the court case? What supports, what courses do we have for the family after that? Yeah. Not a lot. Not a lot. <laughs> Interesting. In, in terms of for the people going through the court system, does that support? And then um, it, it probably takes a lot of time out of your day to go to court and plead your case. It and really does. Do all that yeah. stuff, doesn't it? So if you're already poor and you don't have a lot of 
money working three crappy jobs to try and make one job you're further disadvantaged if you have no money absolutely (laughs) there's a few good initiatives now but what's really needed is that wraparound support outside of the court system which is how do people actually get to court how do they get to their programs so like transport yeah we talk about that in health all the time we don't like transport is so like oh you know like i worked in queenstown for a couple of shifts did you i did in their emergency department it's a it's an excellent group of doctors and nurses that work there because it's a rural emergency department that serves like a very wide area and granted like their patient population is very different from what I'm dealing with in Auckland it's more like white middle class yes healthier a lot of like tourists so you get a lot of ski injuries mountain biking injuries like that you're not getting three like heart attacks and a stroke in a shift like that kind of thing but for the public transport there is no public transport Mm. to their emergency department like the closest bus stop is actually the airport but if you want to be dropped off at the airport it's actually like more expensive on the bus than if you were dropped off anywhere else. So I'm like, this is crazy. They have no public transport to the to their hospital emergency department. So they're completely reliant on Unreal. cars and taxis. Yeah, yeah. Wow. If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. What I think is really interesting and it always shocks people is how long it takes for something to get through the court system in New Zealand. So you go to court and if you would plead not guilty and you say, I didn't do that and you're going to take this to a trial, we're talking probably at least a year Right. If not 18 months. These times were bad before COVID and the backlog that's happened because of COVID is, it's a lot. Do you have much information on like statistics and stuff about the outcomes for people who are Māori or low socioeconomic versus people who are Pākehā or high socioeconomic positions and what their outcomes are at in court for like the same crime? Probably the the starting point for those inequities is probably the prison system uh-huh. and that's just because while Māori make up approximately 15% of the general population they're approximately 50% of the prison population even more for women isn't it yes that's yeah. right yeah it's about, I think it's about 63% of female prisoners are Māori and those numbers are pretty shocking and the Māori also make up a greater percentage of people that are charged in relation to makeup of the general population, so charge as well. just means you've somebody who's been accused of That's something, right? right? Yeah. They're not necessarily guilty; they've just been yeah charged alleged, exactly. Yeah. Charged just meaning that there's been a criminal offence laid against you, and you have to go to court for that, rather than convicted, which is the sense where it's been proven against you or you've pleaded guilty. So I think off the top of my head, I think it's something like thirty-seven percent of people charged are Māori, despite the fact. Only 15% of the general population. I guess some people might argue that maybe Māori people just commit more crimes. Is there any evidence that happens? No, I think that's ridiculous, to be honest. The idea that we can also absolve ourselves of responsibility for it is really problematic. We're all responsible for why those statistics are what they are, and that's because of years of 
it's a phrase we use in the law, systemic deprivation, which is recognizing that these statistics are a consequence of the yeah the conditions that we allow to perpetuate, right? Yeah. By not actively being like, we need to change this. There was like something that I re- remember reading in the news like years ago. And there's this person who is a Caucasian young man who I know very, very distantly within the dance community, who was in the news. They were charged for a drink driving offence and they were clearly guilty of it. And I think it made a big thing in the media because his thing in terms of, I don't know, what do you call it, like sentencing or whatever, when you like give them like the punishment, is that what you call it? Yeah, sentencing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and because he was an up and coming choreographer and he wanted to work overseas and achieve all these great things, having this on his criminal record would be bad for him to get like visas and all that kind of stuff. And so the court were like, oh yeah, okay, you're an up and coming choreographer. This would be really bad for you. So we just won't do that. I can't remember what punishment he had, probably some sort of fine or something like that. And he got off with that. And he has gone off and done some really amazing stuff in the world of like dance choreography, which is really good for him that this one drink driving offense didn't stop him from going achieving all those other things. Because those two things, whether or not someone drink drives and whether or not they're going to be a good dancer choreographer, those are mutually exclusive things. Does it display an aspect of his character that perhaps we don't want in a person in general? Yeah, maybe. But if this person was Māori or Pacifica, would they have gone away with the same thing? Because we've got plenty of excellent Māori Pacifica dancers in New Zealand also who don't necessarily get that same opportunity to go off to the UK or the US and dance for, I don't know, Rihanna or something. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, while I'm not familiar with the uh, the <laughs> dance scene, um, unfortunately, yeah, I think it it's a really important question to be asking and I don't have the answer to it. Because I'm not saying that this person deserves to be charged more seriously. That's definitely not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is, are there aspects of the law that result in over-punishing people that were already disadvantaged, deprived? Yeah, totally. And I think it's as well, if you're in a position of privilege, it's much easier to point to the opportunities that you might lose because they're far more tangible and yeah. accessible than if you're not able to do that immediately. Yeah. Talk about like that example of me not wanting to punish the person more. We shouldn't want to punish people more. What's the point of prisons? Or at least do we need prisons to like the size and scale that we have? Yeah. The idea that we don't need prisons isn't a <laughs> bit new radical one. Though, bit yeah, radical though. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. It's, but it's like I say, it's not a new one, but it did get a lot of traction with the Black Lives Matter movement and things like that in recent times, mainly because of the recognition that minority groups are disproportionately affected. Is it that minority groups commit more crime or is it that the law and justice system is written in the way that puts Maori Pacifica in jails but doesn't put white people crime in jails? Because I'm always like, what's worse, stealing some stuff from a shop or tax fraud in the millions? Exactly, white collar crime. What's worse? (laughs) Totally. And what's the social cost there as well? Yeah. And what's the motivations? One's probably desperation and the other one's probably greed. Going to do we need prisons, it's, at this point, it's probably to what extent do we need prisons? Because I think there's really all the scholarship and the research in the area is increasingly pointing towards the fact that if prisons are justified as an idea of they keep people safe, public safety, right? 
prisons lock up bad people and keep people safe. Really reductive kind of argument, but one that's really appealing, right? Because no one wants to be in danger, right? And it's something that law and order policies often that the whole premise of them is that. But the evidence really is mounting that they don't work for that purpose. Prisons are just generally a temporary loss of liberty, but the root cause of offending and crime can't can't be addressed by prison. And often there's no, there's really limited access to rehabilitation in prisons and things like that. Doesn't it cost like over a hundred K per year per inmate? Yeah. And that's the other thing, the cost of prisons, given that they don't seem to be working is something we should be really worried about. If you spent a hundred K on a person yeah, like outside prison to stop them from getting into prison. I feel like you could achieve a lot more, couldn't you? Because I think about that. Okay, so, You'd think so my medical school training was about 100K, like in student loans. And I'm like, oh, that was like a lot of money. But if you were in prison for one year, like that's medical school training. Exactly. Imagine if, you think know. Think of all the upskilling. Yeah all, yeah, all these people you could put them through, apprenticeships, like university, all that kind of stuff instead of spending a hundred and whatever K to keep them in prison and like for them to go out and then the same conditions that led to this person to be desperate to do the thing that they did, that's not going to change when they get out of prison. So why are we surprised when they come back or not surprised? Exactly. And when you factor in that prison actually erodes people's support networks, right? It takes them away from their whānau, takes them away from employment, all those kind of things. Yeah, right? it's like the whole thing when you look in a CV and it's like, oh, what, can you please explain this gap in your resume? Yeah. <laughs> oh, he was in prison. It, it doesn't look good if you were doing nothing. So these people are going to come out on the other side and be even less employable. Well, just, just having to restart, exactly. What support is there for the rest of the family while potentially the major earner is in prison? What is left over? I actually don't know. Yeah, I actually don't know the answer to that question. I, yeah, I just genuinely don't know what safety net's there. Because you'd hope that's something that would be well known in your industry, right? Because that family is, again, even more destitute than they were before. And we don't know what kind of like resources this family has. I would guess not a lot. And now the main earner of the family is gone. What's going to happen to these kids? You're going to get kids who probably don't get along with their parents. They're going to disengage. They might not go to school, all that kind of stuff. And it's... Like you can just see it from a mile away that this these kids may not have the best time growing up and may end up going down that same route. And we just spend $100,000 keeping their dad in prison per year. Paints a pretty grim picture, doesn't it? Yeah. Ah, why can't we do more? Yeah, I know. <laughs> and what about things like in those wonderful Scandinavian countries where prisons are much more rehabilitative? I've read about some prison and... It was on an island in the middle of a lake or something like that. And people who were classed as low risk, they could serve their sentence by they still stay in the community Monday to Friday, working their jobs, being with their family. And um, just every weekend they have to come back to prison every weekend. What do you think about that kind of model? Yeah, I'd love to know more about it. It sounds very sensible in a way. If if you're allowing reintegration at a nice supervised level, What a fantastic idea, because one of the big things that you hear about from people that have spent time in prison is that the world's moved on. When you're in prison, you come out and it's a very different place. The people that you had connections with are in very different places. And that sense of loss of identity or place and time is 
really destructive. So allowing people to have that and... Maintain relationships with their children. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, just being part of society. Because that's the thing that people struggle with is reintegration, right? And we put all this effort into keeping them away from society and then a little bit of time trying to reintegrate them and then it's, okay, there you go, here's $10. Yeah. (laughs) Because exactly. they give you a small amount of money, like $20 or something like that, when you leave prison or something like that. And it's, all right, here you go. On your way. On your way. Yeah, yeah. See you again soon. <laughs> when I was a medical student, I spent a little bit of time at the Mason Clinic. Oh, really? Yeah. So the Mason Clinic is the forensic psychiatry unit that we have in the Auckland region where you get people who, I guess they're like remanded there because they're like thinking the court is trying to decide whether or not they are unable to represent themselves in court because of, I think, uh, mental health problems. That's right. We call it whether they're fit to stand trial That's right, whether they're fit to Mm. stand trial or not. And I spent a lot of time with one of of the patients there, one of the clients in, in mental health. And I think he was like, awaiting like court to decide whether or not he could be found as defensive insanity or whatever it's called. And so I spent a lot of time with him just to like actually just find out his story basically. So he was a relatively young guy. I think he was like in his 30s or something. And he was telling me the story about how it all started when a relationship breakdown. So he assaulted his ex-partner's new partner basically and that landed him in jail the first time. And I think he was in there for a couple of years. And I think he was doing fine before all that kind of in terms of he had an apprenticeship of some sort so he was going somewhere and when he was in prison there's a lot of violence within prisons and when you're a single person in that environment what can you do to survive right I think he got into some fights or something Mm. and then his fighting ability impressed somebody oh no and then he basically gets recruited to one of the gangs and then so Basically, in that environment, how can you expect someone to not join like a gang or something, right? right? When you are a single person in this dangerous, violent environment and you want safety in numbers, right? They say safety in numbers. So, of course, I'm not surprised that people join gangs when they're in prison, right? You do it for safety. You do it for a sense of belonging. You do it for a sense of whānau, right? So, on the other side, he comes out of jail and he's what do they call it? A new recruit or something like that for this gang. A prospect. A prospect, Mm. yes. So he gets involved with some of the more criminal, organised criminal activity and he's assaulting people or selling drugs and then he starts experimenting with methamphetamines himself and eventually he gets in the cycle of getting more paranoid on the methamphetamine and then Mm. so trying to treat his paranoia of the things that people might be coming after him is to take more so that he stays more alert and all that and then he spirals into the psychotic episode where he ends up almost hurting someone thankfully didn't hurt anyone but almost hurt someone he was clearly Mm. very psychotic at this stage and so that's what brought him to where he was at that time and I'm like this is crazy because I take it back to that point of him being put in jail and that's I don't I'm not qualified and I don't have the reasoning for this about whether or not he should have gone to jail that's not what I'm trying to say but what I'm trying to say is that the environment that he was in when he was put in jail I think has led to where he is now exactly you you don't need to be qualified to to see that (laughs) it's just seeing that narrative and those steps and just seeing they're all coming from that single decision which was 
for him to go to jail, which has led to this cascade of events. And so that was just like one person that I'd met in that forensic unit. Don't really remember the others as well, but the general feeling that I got was that, oh my gosh, like these people are like the tip of the iceberg in terms of a mental health related stuff within the prison system. I think one of the problems is as well as we kind of use the law as a bit of a blunt tool where we say, okay, you don't quite fit the mold and you're do things that are perhaps not exactly what we would consider normal. And the response isn't to find people help because, again, we come back to those wraparound supports, right? We're going to, you need lots of services to support these people that might be learning difficulties, et cetera, mental health issues. And so often that's not there. And so as time goes by, they're not getting help that would keep them out of that justice system. And so eventually they easily end up getting arrested being in prison as well. Yeah, there's a lot of people who probably do things that they wouldn't have done if they'd had like the right mental health care. Oh, 100%. I've also spent some time working in adult inpatient mental health units and it's not the nicest places to be. So the types of mental health related stuff that we see in the emergency departments is the classic suicidal or self-harm attempts. That's relatively common. If I'm working a shift in the Auckland Emergency Department, there will always be at least one or two people who've self-harmed or overdosed on something, mm, right? Mm. That's not uncommon. So we have the psychiatry doctors are often coming down to see patients. And the amount of them that get admitted to hospital, very few. So again, like only the tip of the iceberg are people who meet the criteria yeah, to be yeah. admitted to a mental health inpatient unit. It's such a stretched resource that it's just treat them well enough so that they are no longer psychotic or suicidal and then out the door. And then they just come back again. And that's why Mm. we call this revolving door syndrome. (laughs) There we go. Full circle. (laughs) (laughs) We got there. If you do or don't do something right and somebody calls the police on you and they I don't know, try to arrest you or something like that. What are you what are your rights? Yeah. I guess the first thing is if you're just on the street and a police officer wants to speak to you, they're allowed to ask you questions if they think you might have information that okay. would help them in about investigating a crime but they're not allowed to suggest that you have to answer their questions and you don't have to so they can ask you questions but you don't have to reply there's some very limited information you have to give them (laughs) name address in certain circumstances but the main thing to remember is that you have these rights if you're suspected of having committed a crime or you're under arrest and the first one is that you don't have to say anything you're allowed to keep quiet and it might be a really difficult thing to do in the situation you find yourself in, but you don't have to say anything at all. And that's called your right to silence. And it's a really important. The second one is that before you decide if you want to say anything at all, you have the right to speak to a lawyer. And that's because when bad luck does come knocking, the person in your corner will be a lawyer. And there's that real power imbalance where you're just completely fresh to this. The police even have a list of lawyers that you can speak to for free. Right. They they have to help you. Okay. They have to help you access those lawyers. And that's because speaking to police actually carries a lot of risks for you and that reason that list is there is so that you can get legal advice and these are lawyers that are basically on the clock you have to be on call pretty much yeah yeah oh that's rough yeah (laughs) i know i know it's It's free free. so it's a lawyer you can speak to for free and 
people should make the most of that. And if you do decide to say something, or you might not even make a conscious decision to say something, but you don't think you're making a statement, but you say something, you say whatsoever, will be recorded and it can be used in court. And it's really important to remember that because you might not think you're saying much at all, but without context, it could be really significant. Yeah, I do remember actually one other anecdote about my life. I did actually have a brushing with the police once. Did you? So one time I was actually staying with a friend because I was in between flats and I'd gone out with some friends and one of my friends, she was very drunk to the point where I tried to take her home and she gave me the wrong address in the Uber. So I was oh, like, no. oh, oh, whatever. <laughs> and I just, had to, I just had to take her back to the place that I was staying at. <laughs> and then I got her into bed and then I went to go get myself ready. And then I hear this smash and I'm like, oh, what's Ooh. that? And I come out and I didn't lock her in the room or anything like that, but she decided that she couldn't be there and she needed to like leave. So she smashed like the window of oh. like the room outside. To get out. To get out. And so I come back and she's covered in blood, straddled oh, no. over like the window. And I'm like, what, what is, is this? this? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, god. oh my God, please get down, please get down. And I get her down and I'm like cleaning up the glass and I'm like, oh no, she's covered in blood and cuts and everywhere. And I'm like... Oh, I have to take her to the emergency department. She's just like sitting there on the stairs, just like head in her hands in shame. There's a knock at the door and I look up and I'm like, oh, there's a couple of police officers. <laughs> and then they open the door and they're like, hello, the neighbors called because they heard like a smash. And I was like, oh yeah, my friend, she was really drunk and for some reason decided she wanted to like escape. So she smashed the window going outside and you could see that the majority of the glass was on the outside, not the inside. So there was nobody breaking in. And they're Good like, oh, oh yeah, okay, no, that makes <laughs> sense. And I was like, yeah, oh, we need to go to the emergency department though. Do you reckon you could give us a lift? <laughs> So they gave us a lift. Fantastic. Yeah, that was my one brushing with the law. But again, if you reflect on that, it's if I wasn't in a affluent suburb and yeah. I didn't look the way that I looked, then, you know, it could have been a yep. different story. Oh, and all too often it is. Yeah. This dialogue in the in, in, in public, which is that we're soft on crime, right? Yeah. As you hear that all the time. We're really not in New Zealand soft on crime, but it's a very easy soapbox to stand on and say, look, we need to be tougher on crime and it's a great way to win votes. But the reality is that um It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And it makes things more unsafe. Yeah, it really does, because by putting people in prison, putting traumatized people in the company of other traumatized people without giving them actual help. It's a recipe for disaster. If we actually want to do something about it and feel safe, then we need to not just say, oh, okay, let's keep doing things that we've done for decades and we know don't work. And it just sounds so basic. Right. But it's just... It's insane. Yeah. <laughs> one of the reasons why it's really important that people actually engage with law and the justice system, despite the fact we think it's never going to happen to us, is because it does impact us we're impacted in so many ways by it. And one of the most simple ways is that if we don't know about the law or the justice system, we're really vulnerable to other people's spins on it, be they politicians mm. who are trying to get our votes or hit pieces by the media. So we should become educated about it so that we aren't vulnerable to those kind of, yeah, th th those people that would like to exploit your lack of information mm. about it. How can we learn more about it? 
you do you have to be careful with what you read, right? <laughs> Maybe you should start a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give me ideas. There's a lot of good resources out there for practical things like Community Law Center has a great website. But while there's a lot of excellent work that the mainstream media do, we have to be really conscious as well that everyone's coming with an agenda to to the to the reporting that we hear. So I think it's quite important to look for those pieces that genuinely try to be objective. So it might not be like a a fascinating read, but it's a necessary one. I think it's hard because when you look at emotional responses, always have a bigger response and things are like objective. When we talk about these things and punishment and all that, I think we also have to be quite cognizant of people who are the victims as well. If I was, we talk about punishment, like I just had a thought, if I was raped or physically assaulted by some random person. Yes. I think my emotional response would be, no, lock, lock him away kind of thing. Mm, like mm. give him the I biggest completely thing, right? a normal response yeah. as well. And, you and know. I'm not going to be thinking, oh, but what about what his like socioeconomic position? What, what if they were hurt, blah, blah, blah. And I think we also have to be cognizant of that. That's the reason why the general public are probably against the whole reducing punishments or becoming more re- rehabilitative. I think if I was in that situation, I'd probably be like, yeah, lock him away. I don't think I would be against the idea of him also having rehabilitation, but I would still be like, no, to prison, so we can't do that to anybody else. You know what I mean? So I understand why people are against the whole... Totally, yeah. But two things there. So he can't do it to anyone else for how long? It's only ever going to be temporary. And that's yeah. the thing with prisons, right? And the second one is it never ceases to amaze me the, the real strength of victims in this justice system. I'm always impressed by their resilience and also their willingness to forgive. And that's... Yeah, I think it's really special. Because it's hard. I hear about all these cases of women who've been sexually assaulted or raped or whatever, and a lot of it doesn't make it even into the justice system because the whole difficulty of getting like a guilty verdict in like the alleged offender. That case about Brock or whatever his name is, that college guy who raped that woman and then he had a six-month sentence or something. They only served half of it. Is that justice? Is it not justice? Did he have rehabilitation? Will he do it again? All that kind of stuff. It's very complicated space, isn't it? Totally. And it's such a balancing act. One last question. So if you could transport yourself to any place, any time in the past or present, just to have a walk around and hang out for a bit, where would you go and when? Oh, I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I was always a bit of a history geek. Okay. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> and I was really obsessed with ancient Greece uh-huh. in particular, also ancient Rome, but mainly ancient Greece. When the ones who did it first. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> The OGs. When yeah, when you say that, it's ancient Greece is the first one that comes to mind, and they they were probably the first ones to do this. They didn't get the podcast. They're there exactly. <laughs> they didn't have all this fancy tech with microphones and stuff. But what they did have was good wine and, and good chats. company, and yeah. And so I would I, w- I would think I'd thoroughly enjoy doing yeah, that. Yeah, lots of thinking and yeah. talking and drinking. Yeah, no, I could see you good, doing that. Good practical problem solving. Yeah, um, yeah, hanging out session. with Socrates yeah. and yeah, whatever, yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> and I've, I've always wanted to go to Greece and I've never been, so oh, you that's must probably go. the fastest you must way go. there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Into the past. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on the show, Luke. Thanks, Nina. It's good to be here. Yeah. Cheers. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as Tangata Whenua and to Tiriti or Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. 
we recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Thank you.